You're listening to the e-commerce marketing show presented by Privy. Live from my closet. Hey, what's up, everyone? I hope you're doing well and staying safe somewhere listening at home. My guest today is Kate Hewitt. She is the chief marketing officer at Bombas. They make amazing socks. You've probably heard of them. My mom buys them for me every single year. Kate, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. How are things, to start right off, Like, how are things going from a marketing perspective for you all during the pandemic? It's been a super interesting time period for us. We're really fortunate in that socks or something people are still wearing and using every single day and are in the category of an everyday luxury that people are willing to spend a little bit on at the moment. Have you changed anything from a team perspective? Was there a point in time where like you sent out an email or like, you know, talked to your marketing team or somebody on your team brought up and was like, whoa, this is real. Like we're going to have to change our tone. And because I think we've seen so many brands have just had to adapt to what's happening. Like, did you all have a moment like that? Yeah, definitely. So on the acquisition side, we've always been really focused on ROAS. And so we started to track, you know, we started to adjust our marketing spend earlier than most people just because our ROAS started to shift. And so we responded to that in the way that we normally would. It was a bit more of an extreme move, obviously, than we normally see, but we sort of tracked that on the way down. And then over the last few weeks, through some improvement from a channel perspective, that shifted us towards channels that have more flexibility, which are predominantly digital and away from some of the offline channels, but not in any sort of extreme way. And then for me, also on the channel side for emailing our existing customers and also people on our list, we decided initially to pretty significantly pull back on the cadence of our emails, making sure that people didn't feel inundated with stuff from us in general. And then over the course of the last four weeks, we've slowly added back some of that cadence. And then we've also really evolved, I would say more on the retention side, but also on the acquisition side, some of our messaging. So leaning harder and harder into mission. And then also on the retention side, especially, but also on acquisition, leaning into our apparel products, which are newer for us, but still relevant in this time period. I've seen a lot of discussion about brands. How hard do you push right now? Do you sell? And you mentioned that you kind of, you didn't say ramp, so I don't want to say that, but like you you kind of started to scale up some other channels again. Is that because like you've kind of settled in? Like I I know know we have, we've settled into like, this thing's not going away. So we're going to continue marketing and continue selling, but we're going to do it with empathy and understanding about what's happening. Is that why you scaled some stuff back up? Because this isn't going to go away overnight? It's some of that, but again, as I mentioned, we're very ROAS focused. And so the things that we had pulled back on, we pulled back on them because we weren't seeing the returns that we needed to see to justify continuing to invest. And then as the environment has stabilized a little bit, we've started to see ROAS on some channels, really across all channels improve, but some more than others. And so we've taken that as a sign of, okay, we can start to add back some spend here, but always with a focus on that ROAS target. Got it. Okay. A kind of a separate topic is is your your team. I'm just curious, what is the team of a CMO at a top e-commerce brand? Like what does your team mix look like? And I'm interested in how that's kind of changed and shifted since when you first started. So I started at Bombas as the VP of marketing. It was the second employee. And we built the team 
pretty slowly, we've been focused heavily on profitability since day one, which was one of the major draws for me of joining the company. Initially, I really liked that the founders were focused on profitability from pretty early on. So we started with technically, I was the VP of marketing. What that really meant, especially in the early days, was acquisition and to a lesser extent, retention, mostly because when I first joined, we didn't have very many customers. So I'd say the focus over the last six years has really been on building out the acquisition team. When I started, I was the only person. Now that team is seven. And then the retention team, which really only truly spun up last year, is now two people. And then in October of 2018, when I officially became CMO, I took under my org on top of acquisition and retention, brand marketing, which includes for us partnerships and corporate gifting. And then I also took over our data and analytics team, which was two people at the time, is now seven and still growing. I established a customer insights organization, which is two people. And then I took over or really built because we didn't have an in-house at the time, our digital product function, working closely with our CTO. Gotcha. What's the role of customer insights plays? Is that someone that was there and you like inherited that role or did you, you went and built out that team? No, that was something that I felt pretty strongly was the foundation of a best-in-class marketing organ, really a best-in-class company in our space. What do those people do? I have no. <laughs> this is a new world for me. What is? Yeah. What's the role of customer insights? Is that because I love it? I'm, I'm assuming, like in my head, I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's kind of like close to product marketing and understanding mm-hmm. the market and positioning, but is it more yes. on the product side? So it's that team as well as the data and analytics team support the entire company, not just the marketing organization. So the insights world is focused on a couple things. One, they'll do some work around market research. So for example, we went into t-shirts. How big is the total t-shirt market? How does that compare with the sock market? So sort of broad market research. They do a lot of work around when people come to Bombas, what are the things that motivate them to buy from us? And what are the things that block them from buying from us? And then try to dig deeper into what people are telling us about why they are or aren't buying to try to generate insights that then the acquisition team and the product team is able to use to help people get to the site in the first place and then convert and then feel really great about their experience. There's a part of the insights team that's focused specifically just on user research, which is that part of the team is more connected to our e-commerce product team. And then there's also an element that's focused on creative research. So when we have a, if we're producing a TV spot, for example, we'll typically run the script and the concept through user testing and then try to understand is the message getting through before we go to production. Is that user testing specifically with Bombas customers or people who look like Bombas customers? Like, are you actually testing ads with customers? No. So for that, we use a tool called usertesting.com that allows us access to people that are unaffiliated with our brand. How do you go from Kate, the investment banker, to Kate, the e-commerce brand CMO? I can see a thread about data and analytics and looking at that, but I'm just curious, how did you make that jump and did you know you wanted to do it? So I actually really liked working in finance. I had a great experience. I spent five years at Goldman Sachs. But I would say in my last two years, especially there, it became really clear to me that I was, even though I loved the financial markets and really loved the team that I was a part of, investment grade capital markets, I was really most of all interested in how the companies that I was covering were operating their businesses. And it occurred to me that I might have more fun on the operating side versus financing the operators. And so after five years in finance, I decided to take the leap. I went to a super early stage startup because I figured if I was going to make the jump, I should really, really go for it, go whole hog. <laughs> and so I joined a company that it was literally just the founders and one other employee when I met them. 
I had no idea of what I wanted to do for them other than learn how to operate a business. But the founders identified that I had that analytical skill set. And so I essentially was the first acquisition marketer and also did a bunch of stuff in the FP&A world that fit quite closely together because marketing was one of our biggest expenses. It turned out I just really, really liked performance marketing and then became increasingly interested in broader consumer behavior and product and retention and really understanding what motivated people to interact with brands to buy. I think it's like the analytical element and then the psychology piece, which actually is quite present in financial markets. When you're looking at the stock market or the bond market, it's all about how are people reacting and the sort of mass psychology behind that. We talk so much about psychology and marketing. I've never Mm -hmm. connected it to like, oh yeah, that is a related skill in investment banking too. It's like being able to read, see trends and see what's next. That's cool. How did you learn the e-commerce marketing playbook? Because even when you joined, there weren't a ton of examples you know, of mm-hmm. companies around the time. So it's not like you could say, hey, we're going to go be the Bombas for X and like, oh, I know exactly their marketing playbook and I'm going to go do it. You started with performance marketing, but like, how do you go as a new person coming into e-commerce? How do you figure out that marketing playbook? The first startup that I worked on was an online dating site, which is actually a great place to learn performance marketing because that industry is incredibly, incredibly ROAS focused. And then when I came to Bombas, it was my first time working in e-commerce, but a lot of the tools you know, that would make you a good performance marketer in the online dating space apply in e-commerce as well. And then the other thing that was incredibly helpful was that, as I mentioned, we had a really strict focus on ROAS and profitability at Bombas from day one. And so the marketing approach was really determined by where can we spend money profitably? And then how can we do it in a way that fits the budget we're currently at? We were bootstrapped so early on our budget was quite small. Places that you can operate with a really small budget but still learn are basically Facebook and search. And then with the part of our budget that we felt you know, we had the opportunity to take a little bit more risk with because we thought it might really work, we were pretty early in the audio space, both on podcast and on Sirius. Both worked really well for us, but that could definitely have gone the other way. And if it had, we would have paused it. There's something that speaks to that though, about just being early on channels, like the ability to move fast and and test your way into new channels. Because I'm guessing, knowing the way that you probably think about things, Mm -hmm. you tested your way into podcasts versus just going and blowing the whole budget on it and seeing what happened. Definitely. So one thing I've been really fortunate in is that I had in the online dating company I worked at before, I had the experience of working with TV over the course of several Years And so that was something that I had already, a channel that I was already familiar with. And one of the biggest lessons that I took away from my time in TV is the biggest way that you screw up is pausing a test halfway through, because then you get neither the learnings nor the revenue from that spot. And so that was something that given my experience in the relationship I had with the founders at Bombas, when the time came to work on TV, which was mostly about de-risking from Facebook, which had become too big of a part of our overall media mix. The story was, we need to invest in channels that have real scale and that have proven direct response ability. That means TV, it means radio, it means direct mail. Here's how much we need to spend in each of them and over what period of time. And if we go forward on this, you cannot pull the plug partway through. Having the experience of knowing that to be true and the trust of the Bombas founders was what really led us to get to successful offline testing. Whereas one thing I, I have seen other companies, do is that they do pull the plug partway through and then they don't really learn what they need to learn. 
is that like almost like a stock market thing? Like you invest in something, it goes bad and you immediately pull out to cut your losses. Is that why people do that? Yeah, I think so. I think part of what people don't understand about TV as opposed to something like Facebook is on Facebook, the response is quite quick generally from a customer. Depends obviously on the product you're on, but somebody sees it, they click on the ad, they go to your site, they can buy immediately. TV and radio take a bit longer to what's called wear in, which basically means people need to see it, hear it a bunch of times. And then like at some point they say, okay, I've heard this ad a gazillion times. I'm going to go take an action on it. And what happens with TV, especially if you cut it too soon, is you don't give the channel the time to build into the response that you would ultimately see, which is because it's so different from digital. A lot of companies that are digital first sort of miss that nuance of the channel. And so if they're a weekend and they're seeing, hey, sales aren't up that much and we started running TV, they just assume it's not working when the reality is it could be working. It just needs longer to mature. Got it. Yeah, the frequency frequency on TV and radio is probably like the key the key metric. Where on Facebook, you can get a response, you know, in minutes. Yeah. Um, okay, I have a question for you, which is: Can you? You've talked about ROAS like four or five times mm-hmm. now. Can you talk about? Can you can you break that down for me? Like, I want you to pretend like I, I'm running an e-commerce brand, and you're you're on my board, and I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Like, you're gonna beat me up over ROAS. How, like, yeah. how do I think? How do I think about it? What are the benchmarks? Like, talk yeah. talk me through that. Yeah. So this the simplest way to think about it is: for every dollar you're investing in marketing, how much are you getting back? So if I'm spending a dollar, am I getting a dollar twenty five in revenue back, or am I getting fifty cents in revenue back today, and I expect to get another fifty cents in six months, or am I expecting to only get seventy five cents back ever? Um, so it's really about the relationship between what you're spending and the the revenue that's coming in off of that spend. And that is probably, but but even below that, it, it's unique to each company giving like given financing and runway, right? I'm sure that was different from you when you're bootstrapped first, you know, having however much revenue and funding that you have at Bombas. Yeah, so we we were pretty focused. What we call ROAS is actually technically not ROAS. ROAS is typically on a time adjusted basis. We especially early on. Now this has started to shift. Especially early on, we were focused around how much cash is going out the door today and how much revenue is coming in today or this week or this month. There was not not really a concept of, in the early days especially, of we're going to spend $50 today. And like it's cool if someone takes three years to, to spend $50 with us. That was not something that was ever really an option for us, being bootstrapped. bootstrapped, bootstrapped. Do, you feel like you learn, do you feel like you learn more about direct response because of that though? I think so. Although I'll say the online dating space is so competitive. That, uh, true. Um, you, you can't just like, you can just like spin up a landing page and like test like at, at scale. Yeah. Cause you're not going to, no one's ever going to see your ad. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think actually I would say the experience I came in with really prepared me well to operate in a bootstrapped environment. You were, so you were on podcast uh, advertising early Mm-hmm. Are you still like, how do you, how do you set up your team or like push your mm-hmm. team to be like finding new channels, right? I'm sure there's people on your team right now that you're, mm-hmm. you're expecting like, what, what, what's, what's, you know, the next podcast, whether that's Quibi or I don't know, like what, what are the new channels? Do you have a way of like baking yeah. that into your team? So yes, yes and no. So we, we spend a 
we have a set percentage of our annual media budget that we reserve for testing specifically because we do, and we we look at the the ROAS there separately from what we consider our business as usual spend. And the reason that we have those separate budgets, each with a different ROAS target, is to make sure that the that no one on the team is saying, well, I don't want to do this test because it might screw up my numbers and that they really feel like they own the spend and the success of the tests as well as the spend and success of the core budget. Um, I think I think the test versus core approach really changes a lot though over time. I think in the early days, we were really small and our marketing budget was quite small. So finding a new channel where we could spend $10,000 a month was pretty meaningful. Now we're at a scale where actually like it may be that running tests on existing core channels and getting a lot more efficiency out of the things we're already doing, whether that's creative, landing pages, changing how we're bidding, may actually have a way bigger impact than trying to get in super early on a new channel. But we we really try to keep a balance of exploring totally net new channels and testing things within our existing core channels. Got it. I mean, you're probably more more in, in a different spot as a business too, right? Like if somebody's trying to like come in and disrupt you, then maybe they should be testing all the crazy new channels, but you probably don't need to. Uh, I mean, I... I, I <laughs> you always I, want more. <laughs> you always want more, but also I, I think a hallmark of a great marketing team is that you are always looking for what's what's next and really trying to have a great understanding of the landscape not just from a channel perspective but again going back to that core theme of understanding the consumer that you want to be where people are spending time yeah wherever that is if podcasts go away if whatever goes away all right let, let's shift shift let's shift a little bit and talk about the the creative side of things because it's i think it's the the, the brand that that you've created is just it, it's amazing like i think delicious is a good word but it just looks amazing like the color of real pictures real colors you know it, it's so it's such a it's such an amazing brand like how did how did you sh- how did you shape that did, i'm sure you had a vision for it but like how, how does that actually happen yeah. So I was super fortunate. Two of the um, the founders of Bombas were really focused on brand from day one. And the reason that they asked me to join the team was I brought that more analytical perspective that we talked about earlier. And so I think the creative that you see out in the world is really the result of a push and pull between brand and creative and, and what performs. Um, and we, we really do try to constantly learn and improve on our creative. So we discovered... Pretty early, for example, you mentioned color. We discovered pretty early on Facebook that the ads that really worked the best for us were the ads that featured our brightest, most sort of colorful socks. We called them our candy ads because basically the socks looked bright like you were in a candy store. And we found that even though that's not necessarily what customers who clicked on those ads ended up buying, that brightness, that color, uh, that, um, you know, in other cases, quirkiness was what compelled someone to stop, pay attention to the ad and, and come through to the site. And is your whole creative team in-house? It is. So all of the creative ideation is in-house. All of the creative production is in-house with the exception of video production and photo shoots. How do you, how do you balance having like such a, 
performance marketing mindset and, and, you know, that's, that's the whole model in, in, mm-hmm. in e-commerce. How do you balance that with also having like an amazing creative team? Cause you're going to have so many different person, like the personalities of your team is going to be split yeah. and you're obviously a, a super analytical minded um, CMO. Like how do you, how do you, how do you have balance of those things on the team? Yeah. So I think, as I mentioned, we've had since day one with, with two of the founders and myself, a really good balance of we want everything that goes out in the world to perform and we want everything that goes out into the world to f- look and feel really on brand. And I would say that's our, that's always our goal. We don't want to really separate brand and performance. Cause I think when you do that, you end up, you end up running the risk that the two creative directions move too far apart and that you don't have a recognizable uniform brand in the world. And so we work, really hard all the time uh, from you know the executive level down through the rest of the team to make sure stuff looks great and performs well. It's always good if it can look great and <laughs> and yeah. perform well. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up in, 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 a, in a couple of minutes, but I, I want to have uh, quite a couple of questions for you is if I was the C, if I was your CMO at an e-commerce mm-hmm. brand, you were, you were advising me, what would you be measuring? What would you be measuring me on? Like, I got to give you my scorecard at the end of the year as a CMO. What are the things that you're coaching me or beating me up on? Yeah. Um, I think first, I mean, depends if performance is a, is a, depends on what the goals of the company are. So I think probably first and foremost is, is what you are doing supporting the overall goals and strategies of the company? Are you hitting the goals and targets you've set for yourself? If not, that actually might be totally fine as long as you have a good understanding of why you're not um, and being able to adjust your plans to try to get closer to, to hitting those goals. I think the second thing that I spend a lot of time on and you know myself solicit a lot of advice from mentors and, and coaches on is how does your team work? Are people happy? Are they clear on their job descriptions? Are they working well together? Are they collaborating? Do they, you know, are they proactive and looking for opportunities? I think those are probably the two biggest things that I would focus on. Where does, um, where does like ROAS show up on like a, on a metric scorecard? Is that something that you'd be like, Hey, show me every, every quarter what, what this looks like? Yes, definitely. Yeah. That would be in that, that first bucket of, how are you supporting company goals? I would imagine marketing spend and ROAS would both be in there. Is there like is there a tar- is there like a target benchmark that you that that you could give, or is it different for every company? I think it's different for every company. What um what what are the biggest things that have changed in in e commerce since since two thousand fourteen when you joined? I mean, I basically. The, the whole it's been a whole new world for smaller mm-hmm. and growing brands with the ability to like go and go and launch a business. But yeah. you know, w- what are the biggest shifts that, have, that, that, that you've had that you see in 2020? Yeah. I think, I mean, 2020 is now a very different looking year than I would have thought it was a few months ago, but sort of more broadly over the past six years, I think just the continued explosion of e-commerce has been pretty, pretty wild. I think, you know, Shopify has really grown it seems like exponentially. Um, and so we're seeing a lot more e-commerce startups in the, in the space. And I think that's, I think that's probably a win for consumers. They have more, more choice than ever before. Um, the other thing that is, has been really interesting, which I'm curious to see how this year impacts it is 
we've started to see a lot more e-commerce in retail and wholesale over the last probably two, three years, especially. And I'm very curious to see we're we're still almost entirely e-commerce. We have a couple of great wholesale partners, um, but we're, we're really predominantly e-commerce. And so I'm curious to see how the e-commerce landscape shifts, you know, post the coronavirus era. Yeah, like if, if retail if retail is still a thing, if yeah, people are going to go to the store or not. I mean, it's not going to go yeah, away, but... Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how much of the current shifts in behavior stay and for how long. And, and for, for, for what you sell, it's like people, you don't need to go, you don't necessarily need to go to a store to like try on a pair of socks, make sure they fit yeah. okay and buy them. Uh, yeah. You did remind me though, I had this question written down, which is mm. how did, um, did, did the move to hold, like, did you have to change how you do marketing when you made the shift to wholesale or is it like a, was there like a new playbook you had to learn? Not, not yet. Because as I mentioned, it's a, it's a very small percentage of our overall business. Okay. Um, I would say on the, Contrary, what we've found is that all of the marketing that we've done for our e-commerce site has really contributed to our success in wholesale. From from like a awareness perspective, yeah. Got it. Um, all right, maybe this will be the last one. What's the what's the right time to hire in in marketing as an e-commerce brand? You you joined early in in both of the companies. I think you mentioned what's the right mm-hmm. time to bring on marketing at an e-commerce brand. I think it really depends what your goals are as a business and how how much you want paid performance marketing to be a part of your your mix. Um, and I think you know how you think about marketing would also really impact the hire. I think if it's if you want to stay lean and scrappy, you can probably hire somebody a little less experienced, super hungry. Um, you know if you. But it really, and it also actually really depends on what the composition of the founding team is. So in our case, you know, as I mentioned, two of our founders were really heavily focused in brand and creative. So they needed a balance of a more analytical person. If on the founding team, you had someone super analytical, you would actually probably want to bring in someone who has a bit more of a brand background. If you had someone really strong in search, you might want to bring in someone who's much stronger in offline. So depends a lot on, on your existing team, what the core values of the business are, what the core business objectives are and the strategy you've laid out to get there. Because um, that would all point you, all of those things would point you to potentially quite different people in terms of skill sets and seniority. Do you think like every e-commerce brand has to have... Um a mission like like you have i mean so many of the so many of the the leading brands do have that is that like a prerequisite of being successful do you think so i would say yes yes and no i would say for us our mission has been it's one of the the greatest things about working at bombas for me personally it brings meaning to my work it brings meaning to everyone on the the team i would say especially in the current environment having our mission and being able to lean into it more strongly than ever has really helped keep everyone on the team engaged and feeling like the work that they're doing really matters. Um, and it's been really helpful in terms of getting, you know, have, have giving customers another reason to talk about us. But I think the reason it works for us is that we really ingrain it in every single thing we do. We had an all hands call 
earlier today, our giving team walked us through a spotlight on one of our giving partners. We do that every single two weeks at our all hands. You know, we hand out socks, get donation socks to people when they come in and interview with us. Like it's, it's really part of everything we do. I think if you have a mission that is that ingrained, it's really, really valuable. And I think if you don't, if you have one that's not that ingrained, I think it actually has the potential to be more of a liability than an asset. And if that's the case, I think probably, honestly, you're, you're better off just being transparent about what you are, whatever that, whatever that is. Love it. I think, I mean, that, that's a great example. Like that shows that you all live that to your core. It's too hard. If you, if you fake it today, I think people are eventually going to kind of find out if you don't really live that. Well, Kate, this was awesome. This was an awesome half hour. I appreciate you um, taking the time. Um, I don't think normally this is when I'm like, Hey, plug whatever you want. But I think Bombas is a brand everybody will know. So, so, so go and check them out. But um, you know, feel free to tweet at me if you're listening at Dave Gerhardt on Twitter at Privy and, and let me know feedback on this episode what you're thinking about what you want to hear on the show kate thanks for doing it and we'll talk to you soon thanks so much dave